May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. You may remember the name George O'Leary. George O'Leary was hired by the University of Notre Dame to coach their football team in the offseason in December of 2001. George O'Leary had previously been the head football coach at uh, Georgia Tech University in Atlanta, and he was, um, he was quite successful, viewed by many as one of the most innovative and, and creative thinkers in, in college football. And so Notre Dame, having come off several seasons of really bad football, was so thrilled to have him as their next coach. He served as the head coach at the University of Notre Dame for five days before he resigned under huge amounts of pressure. You see, the university was so proud to have George O'Leary as their new head football coach that they posted his uh, resume on the university's sports website. And someone with nothing better to do decided that they would go through and fact-check his resume. Turns out that uh, Mr. O'Leary said that he had received three varsity letters for playing football at the University of New Hampshire and that he had received a master's degree, uh, I think also from the University of New Hampshire. Turns out um, he never actually played a down of football at the University of New Hampshire, and so he never received a single varsity letter. And although he had started a master's degree program, he never completed it, and so he didn't actually have the degree that he said that he had. So the scandal was huge, and under the mounting pressure by the media, um, after five whole days, George O'Leary resigned uh, from his job. You see, here's the thing. He was hired by the University of Notre Dame because of his previous performance, not because of what was on his resume. I mean, as impressive as three varsity letters from the University of New Hampshire must have felt to him, I've never actually heard of the University of New Hampshire before. It wasn't that impressive to Notre Dame. That's not why they hired him. They didn't hire him because he had a master's degree. They hired him because he knew how to win football games at Georgia Tech. And yet, he couldn't get beyond feeling that he had to have these things on his resume. That they had to, people had to think well of him in these ways. And so he put them down there. Because the fact is, that we all care about what people think about us. We do. I know we do. I certainly do. I remember a time where I was uh, invited to preach at this church. Um, it was a church that had regularly had these um, sort of prestigious uh, preachers. And so, you know, I sort of felt like I was in good company, you know, and they invited me to come. And, and so I went and, and I would and I preached. It was, a, you know, a, a church that... Um, that well healed individuals, as you say, you know, and they, they would put um, on the inside of the bulletin cover, you, you know, a little bio about the preacher or whatever. And so they had my little bio in there and I felt kind of important, you know. And so I, I, I preached my sermon and, um, you know, little old me from nowhere and nobody. And, and I had a chance to preach this, this prestigious sort of pulpit. And after the service, I'm standing back in the back, and people are coming out, and they're very, they're very complimentary and said very nice things to me. And this one fella who says to me, you know, that was really, you know, that was the best sermon I've heard here maybe ever, which I said, all right, you know, good on you, Joe. And he said, and all that despite your lackluster resume or something like that. <laughs> you know, normally, he says the people here are from Harvard or Yale, and, you know, Asbury, I don't even know where Asbury is, you know. I thought... 
uh, okay. And, and you know, here's the thing. He meant it as a compliment. I mean, he, he, he genuinely did. You don't have the sort of resume. But you did really well. I, I was proud of you. I don't know. I've always sort of felt like, have you ever seen the movie Goodwill Hunting? Um, there's this there's this part where where Will this kid is in a bar and there's the, he's in a Harvard bar you know and there are all these Harvard students and Will's not he's from he's from Southie he's a he's a poor kid from the south side of town and and there's some you know kind of snobbish Harvard student who's trying to prove how intelligent he is and and Will says to him you know what's really going to bother you someday is you're going to realize you dropped three hundred thousand dollars on an education you could have got for a buck eighty seven and overdue fees at the public library that's what's really going to get you someday. I sort of feel like that. I resonate with that guy. But the truth is we care. We care what people think about us. And we tell it to our kids. I've said it to my kids. Benjamin's probably over there nodding. I'm not even looking. You've got to pad the resume. You know? You've got to work on that high school resume because it's going to determine your college. And you've got to pad that college resume because it's going to determine your job. And You've got to work at these things. You've got to pad that resume. It, it matters what your resume looks like. St. Paul, writer of the New Testament letters, 13 of them, pretty impressive resume. Pull out your bulletin, will you? Will you look at it with me? Paul does something that you don't often find in biblical literature. He puts out his CV, his resume. He puts it out there for us to see. It's on page 6 there in in the epistle lesson. Right at the very beginning of it, he says this, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, we don't usually use this language, confidence in the flesh. Um, He's saying, if anyone thinks they have something to brag about, if anyone thinks that they've done something in this life worthwhile to brag about, I'll tell you what, I have more. He goes on. Look at this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the, of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. What Paul is saying is that he is one of the few people who is through and through thoroughly Jewish. Now you say, well, that's interesting. I don't understand why he would say that. Well, here's why. Because he was under the the impression, people who lived in his world, that it was very important to be of a Jewish pedigree. The chosen people of God. And even in the church, it meant as you came into the church, if you were a Gentile and came into the church, the church was almost entirely Jewish at the time of Paul, but if you were one of the rare Gentiles who came in, then you you had to basically become Jewish. You had to become Jewish in terms of, of keeping kosher, of keeping the calendar. And if you were a male, of being circumcised. That these were important markers. You had to, you had to sort of, you had to become a Jew, even if you were not born such a way. And Paul is saying, if in terms of spiritual, uh, you know, resume and background, look what I have, circumcised on the eighth day. Couldn't, this is what the law required, that a male boy at, on the eighth day be circumcised. But obviously, an eight-year-old cannot present himself to a rabbi for a brisk. You know, this isn't something that an eight-year-old, eight-day-old can do. He has to be taken by his mother and father. So even that part of righteousness that you can't do yourself depends upon somebody else doing it. And somebody did it for Paul, an Israelite by birth, from the tribe of Benjamin. 
you may know this, there were only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that remained loyal to the covenant. Ten other tribes were lost, assimilated into Assyrian exile. But not Judah and Benjamin. Paul is saying, from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the, one of the few remnants of faithful Jews, a Pharisee, great word here, a pious one. A person who was so so um, meticulous about his um, about his keeping the law, about keeping kosher, about observing days, uh, about making sure that he was in the temple in the proper times, that doing all the ritual law required by by even the most um, uh, the most serious and circumspect. Uh, religious person, so, so zealous for Orthodox Judaism that when Christianity began as a, as a Jewish sect, he tried to stamp it out by persecuting it. When it came to the law, blameless. He couldn't find a single point of order where Paul was, was out of place, where he, he was doing things wrong, where he, he didn't follow it. You know, it's like um, I have these friends who are like these really super high church Anglo-Catholics. I love them. They are wonderful. But, you know, they all know when to bow. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I do, I do it as well as I can. But, you know, they like they have the liturgical rubrics down to memory. You know, oh, Joe, you know, you missed it right there. OK, I do. Paul was the kind of person that was so meticulous about his following, following of Judaism that not in one point was he at fault. But all of this doesn't seem to matter to Paul. It seems to matter to some people. Again, if you were going to become a Christian and you were not born a Jew, there was a belief, a strong belief in the church of the first century that you had to become basically a Jew. You had to accept kosher law. You had to accept the ritual. You had to accept the calendar and all these sorts of things. And Paul seems to say, no, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. I think the only thing that matters is faith in Jesus Christ. Not all of the other things. Look back down at the text, will you? Verse 7, do you see this? He looks at his resume, considers the things that we've just saw, and here's what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake. Whatever advantage I had, I counted as a disadvantage. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. How many is included in all? <laughs> if you gave me all your money, how much would you have left? I'm not giving you all my money. Um, if, if you gave me everything you had, how much would you have left? I have counted the loss of all things. And indeed, look at this, count them as rubbish. If you had an old King James Version... Count them as dung. Yeah, exactly. Rubbish is a much more sanitized, pardon the pun, translation. This, I count them as loss, as rubbish, as to be thrown in the garbage or flushed down the toilet. You know how, how academics, yeah, we, we, like to, um, we like to give resumes, don't we? BA from Princeton, you know, MA from Yale. 
PhD from Harvard. You know, you got to drop the R's too right there when you say it, right? Uh, or, or even in business, you know, he was the CFO of, of General Motors or Dell Computers or Microsoft or whatever. Even on ESPN. ESPN, I'm watching the other day, and, and Robert Smith, some, kid, some guy I used to watch play for Ohio State, and, and there's, he's talking about somebody else's football team, you know? And down in the little bottom quarter, it said Robert Smith resume. <laughs> Played football at Ohio State, you know, running back at Ohio State. Uh, drafted in the first round by the Minnesota Vikings. Played 10 years in the NFL. His little resume down there in the corner. Paul said, you know, I'd like to take that resume that everybody thinks is so important and throw it away. It's trash. It's garbage. It's worthless. Everything I have is discarded. And here's what I have left. The only thing that I have left, verse 10, so that I may know him, that is Christ, and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul said the only thing that matters in my life is that I have this all-consuming passion to follow Jesus. To pursue Him with everything that I have. It's the only thing that matters. And I think he would say, it's not only the only thing that mattered to him, it's the only thing he thought that mattered to the Philippians. These Gentile Christians who have come into the church and are confused about whether or not they should follow all these Jewish laws and rituals. And he says, no, here's what you need to do. You need to pursue Jesus wholeheartedly. Energetically. With all that you have. And everything else is garbage. Everything else is a waste of time. Everything else is fruitless. Um, some years ago I went to, uh, to Houston, Texas to, um, to visit my... I was down there for the Anglican Mission Winter Conference. My aunt and uncle actually were in Houston living there. And so I wanted to go see them. And I, I kind of got over to visit them and, and was at their house. And, and my uncle says to me, I want to take you somewhere and show you something. So sure, let's go. And so we jump into the car, and he takes me to a friend of his who who owns these um, these massive metal storage buildings. You know the you know what I'm talking about the kind of like big warehouse kind of buildings. And and we went into one of them, and there's like these guys working on this old car, like a Cadillac or something. And you know they're over there, and 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 off to the side there are like rows of these old dusty cars. You know they're they're um, a Metropolitans. You know what a Metropolitan is? There were a bunch of them. You know that, and they had these old cars, and and they were just you know kind of dusty and old. And I thought, wow, that was kind of amazing. Just the sheer collection of them was was impressive. My uncle says, oh, but you haven't seen anything yet. And so we walk out of this massive warehouse building into another massive warehouse building. But this one was completely different. It was all well lit. The floors were were concrete but waxed like glass. And there were rows and rows and rows, hundreds of cars that were restored to sort of showroom quality. And I'm talking Model A's and Model T's and Packard's and Hudson's and Studebaker's and Corvette's and Camaro's and uh, those, even he had the old kick car from the television, he had three of them. He had the most beautiful, I am telling you, the most, if you ever want to buy something for your rector, the most beautiful 1965 Ice blue Ford Mustang convertible with white leather interior. Did I mention that you could? Yeah. Anyway, he, oh, I was sit. Oh, it was. It was gorgeous. It was like this museum. 
I had never been in such a fine museum. But it wasn't a museum. This was this guy's collection. This is what he did for fun. These were his toys. I mean, tens of millions of dollars worth of toys. And, and he was really a great fellow, very nice. He just, you know, toured us around and he would tell me all about this car and that and where he got it and what was required and, and how it was restored with all parts made from the original manufacturer, all this stuff. He had this all-consuming passion for American automobiles. And I think, I just wonder, I wonder what it would be like for me, not for you, but for me, to be so consumed with a passion for Jesus Christ, so consumed that everything I did was about that. And I wonder, I mean, I wonder what a community of people who were so consumed with a passion for Jesus that we would give everything we had to follow Him. I think it would be a remarkable thing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.